So Numbers chapter 4, verse 46. So Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel counted all the Levites by their clans and families. All the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to do the work of serving and carrying the tent of meeting numbered 8,580. At the Lord's command through Moses, each was assigned his work and told what to carry. Thus they were counted as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send them away, male and female alike, Send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. And over the page in chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, they must shave their head on the seventh day, the day of their cleansing. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sinned by being in the presence of a dead body. That same day they are to consecrate their head again. They must rededicate themselves to the Lord for the same period of dedication and must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. 
The previous days don't count because they became defiled during their period of dedication. Now this is the law of the Nazarite when the period of their dedication is over. They are to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. There they are to present their offerings to the Lord. A year old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering. A year old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering. A ram without defect for a fellowship offering together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made with the finest flour and without yeast. Thick loaves with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. The priest is to present all these before the Lord, and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread, and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord, together with its grain offering and drink offering. Then, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that symbolizes their dedication. They are to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair that symbolizes their dedication, the priest is to place in their hands a boiled shoulder of the ram and one thick loaf and one thin loaf from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave these before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication, in addition to whatever else they can afford. They must fulfil the vows they've made according to the law of the Nazarite. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Thanks be to God. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be um, with you tonight. Uh, I send greetings from uh, Cornerstone Church. I was preaching down at Cornerstone this morning. Um, so many in the church uh, remember us here and I told them we pray for them regularly so um, greetings for many at Cornerstone and do remember to um, pray for Cornerstone um, Paddy's coming back from Paddy the pastor coming back from sabbatical end of March beginning of April um, so do pray for him as he sort of begins to prepare for coming back and um, we pray that God would continue to lead them as a church forward in whatever's next for them 
Um, but Cornerstone send their greetings. Also, just a little apology. Um, last week I said something that was a little misleading. I just wanted to clear it up because um, I don't want to be misleading. Last week I had this uh, slide on the screen and I was talking about one of the names of God, Yahweh. And I was saying that it's written um, with the four letters, with the vowels taken out. And I think I said mistakenly, uh, it's written like that because the Hebrew people didn't want to write the name out in full, in reverence for who God was. Um, that's a mistake because actually it's written like that because there are no vowels in the Hebrew language when it's written. What I meant to say was when God's people came to read this name in their scriptures, because they didn't want to mispronounce the name in fear of getting the Lord's name in vain, they would substitute this name Yahweh for another name of God, um, something like Adonai. Um, so that's what I meant to say last week, but made that mistake. So apologies for that. But I hope that's given you a bit of clarity um, just for uh, that sake. Well, um, if you weren't here last week, uh, we began our little series in the book of Numbers. Um, interesting book, and as that was read, you're probably thinking, I'm glad I'm sitting there and not standing up there. Um, it's a difficult book, isn't it? But this uh, opening slide describes the book of Numbers. It's a book where God's people walk around in circles, wasting time. Uh, they grumbled, they wasted time. And uh, there were two things we looked at in that opening week. The first is this challenge, that the kind of mirror that the book of Numbers holds up to us to challenge us not to waste our lives. And so it's a pretty challenging book that reveals the state of our heart. But then the flip side is there's on every page wonderful encouragement about how faithful God is. And we'll see both of those things, the mirror that challenges and the promise of God's encouragement um, as we come to our passage tonight. Uh, this is where we were last week. There were three things we looked at. Um, I encouraged us not to forget that we really matter to God. I encouraged us to remember that our obedience really matters to God. And then challenged us that our obedience really needs to matter to us. Uh, and then if you really want a reason for the book of Numbers, you have to go to the New Testament to a book called 1 Corinthians. And right at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, we get... Uh, the words that are on the screen there just, ex- just explain uh, the exodus, the great rescue from Egypt. Uh, and then we read ultimately about God's people wandering in the desert. And we see in verse 6, Paul says, now these things occurred. In other words, the things that we're learning about in the book of Numbers occurred as what examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So as we come to this passage, what's the point of us reading that seemingly bizarre passage? What's the point in learning from it together tonight? It's the reason that's on the screen, that we can learn from the example of the people of God in the book of Numbers and that God would protect us from setting our heart on evil things. So should we pray as we come to this passage that that would be true for us? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful book of Numbers. Um, It's difficult to understand, it's difficult to read. But thank you that we have here a reminder that what's going on here is an example to us to protect us from ourselves, from setting our hearts on evil things. We pray that as we work through Numbers 5 and 6 together tonight, that you would help us and change our hearts, that we can live lives of obedience to you and not grumble and waste our lives like God's people did in the desert. Amen. Um, So last week we were looking at um, chapters 1 to 4, big sort of section we looked at, and then today is chapters 5 and 6, and as I ended last week, we're going to begin with where we're going to end up again tonight, Numbers chapter 6, that wonderful prayer. Uh, The Lord speaks to Moses, says, tell Aaron to tell the people. It's kind of Chinese whispers. God to Moses, to Aaron, to the people. This is the blessing that I want you to pray over God's people. And let's have a look at the blessing. 
uh, one more time. The Lord bless you and keep you. Remember, that's the sense of being guarded by God. The sense of our souls being protected. The Lord make his face shine on you. It's this idea of God looking on his people and blessing them. It's a speaking of covenant relationship about knowing him. That's what the blessing is all about. Our souls being guarded because we know the living God. Um, where does the blessing come from? Do you see right at the bottom there? Um, so they will put whose name on the Israelites? My name, God says. That's where the blessing comes from. And then it reads, I will bless them. That I there is emphatic. It's a very strong word saying, I am the one who will bless my people, says God. So the blessing is talking about spiritual protection and relationship. It's a blessing that comes from God. And how is the blessing received? Do you notice there? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. This blessing that was prayed over the people of God was a blessing of grace which is interesting isn't it particularly in the old testament in the context of the covenant keeping people grace was still at work and grace was very much at work here and then we see what is the result of all this blessing the lord turn his face towards you and give you peace that word peace perhaps has more depth to it um, in its meaning than we would naturally have in our understanding of peace it's the hebrew word shalom that really means wholeness God wants to give us wholeness. He wants to make us whole. And so really what you have in this blessing is a wonderful picture of the heart of God. I mean, who in the world does not want to be blessed and be kept? Who in the world doesn't want to know the grace of God? Who doesn't want to know his peace? Sadly, many people. But I'd say, who doesn't want this? Who wouldn't want this incredible blessing from God? And what we're learning in the book of Numbers is that blessing comes from God... And blessing is therefore only enabled through relationship with him. And that's what chapters 5 and 6 that we're looking at today are all about. How can this relationship that brings about God's blessing, how can it function? Just remember though, chapters 1 to 4, it's all about God's people being counted and being coordinated. So here's a, a map of, or a picture of the people of God. Just notice a few things as we look at this on the screen. These are the 12 tribes. They're all numbered, named. They sit around the outside of the camp. You've got here Aaron and Moses at the eastern entrance to the camp. And then you've got here the tabernacle. This is the sort of tent with the walls that are, that are taken down and put back up. And you have the altar here and the basin for washing and then the holy place and the most holy place. So this is kind of how God's people were organized. I wonder what you notice as you look at it. I'll flip it around because now east is facing east. Here's east. This is the way it would have been. And then if you put it in a sort of diagram like this, just notice three things about God's people who are counted and coordinated. First of all, notice there's order. They're not just camping wherever they fancy. You know when you go camping and you sort of say, I fancy putting my tent right there. It's not like that. They have to put their tents up where God tells them to put them up. And it's not a few people. We're talking about thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people camping in real coordinated order first thing to notice notice the second thing god is right here at the heart of his people that's what the tabernacle is all about it became replaced by the temple later on a permanent dwelling place symbolizing god's presence in the heart of his people so you've got god's people here organized you've got god at the heart and then do you notice who sits between god's people and god himself who's here the priests. 
The whole point of the priests in the Old Testament, where they acted as kind of mediators between the people and between God. But the interesting thing is, as God's people are counted and then they're coordinated in in Numbers chapters 1 to 4, this order that you see on the screen behind me will not be self-sustaining. Without the intervention of God and without his instruction, this turns to chaos. Now, just think uh, of a situation in life. Maybe you're a parent and you uh, have a young child and you tell them to tidy their room. It's chaos. Everything's everywhere. And then what happens on a weekend? You start tidying the room and the smelly socks go in the wash basket and uh, the Lego that you keep breaking your feet on gets put in the box. Uh, and clothes get hung up and dirty clothes get washed and there's order created. And then when your child's bedroom is lovely and pristine and clean, what happens? Chaos. After a few days, it becomes chaos again. You can't find their bed. They can't find the door. Or, or think about gardening. You, you spend ages when the sun's out, going out in your garden. You kind of order the garden. You cut the grass. And you trim the edges. And you prune uh, the shrubs. And you maybe at the beginning of the summer, take everything out of your garden shed and sweep it out and order it. And it's all hanging up nicely on the wall. And you sort of think, ah, oh, my garden is looking good. Some of you are thinking, <laughs> I never do that. But I know people who do. But what happens to a pristine garden... It becomes chaos if you don't tend to it. And when you look at the people of God and this coordination and God at the center of their people, uh, the center of the people of God, that turns to chaos without the instruction of God. And that's what chapters five and six are all about. Think about in a spiritual sense where chaos enters into the world. It's because of disobedience, because we don't, we ignore God. If we ignore his instructions, there's not going to be spiritual uh, peace. And that's what chapter 5 is all about. And so what we see here is three sets of instructions. We didn't read them all. But three sets of instructions that God gives his people. And the first one is purity in the camp. Do you see it there in chapter 5, the first four verses? The Lord says to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. Now, it seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? You find someone in the camp, and in the camp of that many people, there will be thousands of people ill. It's a bit harsh to sort of send them out of the camp, isn't it? Kind of, why don't you send them to the doctor? Well, part of it was to do with cleanliness. Actually, if someone had an infectious disease in a camp where everyone's tightly packed together, it would spread very quickly. So some of it was just pragmatism. But there was far more going on because sending them out of the camp was meant to also be symbolic. Sin is defilement. They're going outside of the camp, sending people outside of the camp. When the Israelites saw some of their number going outside of the camp for a while, it was meant to act as a symbol to them of defilement that needs to be dealt with. You can't just let impure people dwell in a people where God is pure. They have to be sent away. So it's very symbolic, and we'll come back to that. God's people who are impure are sent outside the camp. So there's meant to be purity in the camp. There's also meant to be purity in relationships. Have a look at verses 5 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, is guilty, and must confess the sin they have committed. It's interesting, isn't it? Here is a description of two people at odds with each other. But here we're reminded, where we sin against one another, 
we're also being unfaithful to the Lord. Our vertical relationships are never separated, sorry, our horizontal relationships are never separated from our vertical relationships. And in this camp where God's people may have been at odds with each other, they were reminded too that that led them to being at odds with God himself. And so notice that where there's purity in relationships, where purity in relationships is called for, um, where there's wrongdoing, it has to be paid for. Hence, verse 7, they must confess their sin. And then the third little pitch you get in chapter 5, purity in the camp, purity in relationships, and then purity in marriage. And the idea here is that sin is a picture of unfaithfulness and broken relationships have to be restored. So where there was marital unfaithfulness, uh, where that person had to stand before the priest and face potential judgment, chapter 5, verse 16, they were to stand before the Lord. But you step back from all the detail in chapter 5. The point is, in chapter 5, it's a chapter all about holiness, which is ultimately all about sustaining the coordination and the order in the camp and for God's people to remember who they are and who God is. So holiness is actually about order. It facilitates obedience. Then if you notice that at the beginning of each of those little sections, so look at verse 1, verse 5, and verse 11, do you notice a little phrase that's repeated? The Lord said. The Lord said. The Lord said. These aren't just arbitrary instructions that someone's come up with. This is the covenant-keeping God who speaks to his people And he says, you are my covenant people, but this covenant will work only if you are obedient to me. I wonder if you've ever thought of holiness like that. That the purpose of God calling us to be separate, to be different, to be set apart from him, is ultimately all about preventing chaos in his world. And also to help relationships to flourish and to be fostered. Little example of it. Imagine, um, again, being a parent and you have a small child who says, Mummy, Daddy, can I do some baking? You say to little Johnny, of course you can do some baking, but then you give him some instructions, because if you don't, this is what happens. Little Johnny wants to bake, but without instructions, it goes absolutely everywhere. It's why if you've had a, a very small child, you might put those little clips on the doors Because when they start crawling around, and even more dangerously, when they start walking around, if you don't protect yourself and give them instructions, chaos. Because the baby finds the flower, and the flower goes everywhere. See, there's a a purpose, isn't there, in life, to being given instructions. And without instructions, there's chaos. So you take these two silly little examples of a, a little boy who wants to bake, or a little girl who finds a way of destroying the kitchen in a different way. When they don't listen to the instructions of their parents, it leads to chaos. Well, think about our world. When we haven't listened to the instructions of, not our parents, but our loving Father in heaven, chaos, brokenness, not just a broken physical world, but a broken spiritual world, broken lives, broken hearts, all because we've turned our back on the living God. So next time we think about holiness, I want to encourage us to think about holiness as a means to prevent chaos. These aren't instructions from God who just wants us to do what he says because he's got all the power and he kind of likes being the big cheese. These are instructions from a loving God that leads to our flourishing. And we see in the brokenness of our world, when we turn our back on God, that's where chaos ensues. 
And that's what chapter 6 is all about, that really bizarre chapter that I very deliberately had all read. We're not going to spend very long on it, but I wanted it to be read to us, just so we understand the context. But this is what chapter 6 and the Nazarite vow is all about. Uh, The Nazarites were the kind of most dedicated um, non-priests in the Old Testament. So people like Samson was a Nazarite. People like Samuel, um, John the Baptist. These were non-priests who were the most dedicated. And what they could do is they could enter into a voluntary kind of special vow for a temporary period to mark themselves out as devoted to God. And it was rather bizarre because in the reading you probably saw why these seemingly arbitrary laws, but the Nazarites had to abstain from alcohol. They had to abstain from anything made of grapes. They had to grow their hair very long. It might seem very weird to us. But one of the purposes of it was when someone took up a Nazarite vow, the whole people of God would see them because it stood out, it was different. And they could say, here's a person who has dedicated their life to the Lord. It was meant to be a symbol to encourage the people of God in their holiness. Okay, we don't need to do some of the things that the Nazarites did. It would be rather bizarre and it really wouldn't make much of an impact in our culture. But worth asking ourselves this question. Where in my life this week do I need to show greater dedication to the Lord? Maybe a relationship. Maybe in the use of our time. Maybe in a particular attitude of our heart. Just worth reflecting. Where can I, as it were, show this Nazarite dedication to the Lord? Saying, Lord, I want to be holy. I want to be different. I want to be shaped by you. Because blessing comes from people who walk in close relationship with the Lord. And so you get chapters 1 to 4, God's people are counted and coordinated. You get chapters 5 and 6, God's people are called to be organized and made holy, set apart for him. Instructions that are given to prevent chaos. But yet, what is the huge problem that we're going to see? Because remember, the book of Numbers is all about God's people walking around in circles, wasting time, grumbling. The problem with this coordination, the problem with these laws, is really the heart of the heart of the problem is really the human heart. That God's people, left to themselves, struggle to be obedient to God. And that's true of us, isn't it? We all struggle to be obedient. And actually, in a spiritual sense, without Christ working in our life and shaping our hearts, we're going to be just like the Israelites who wasted their lives wandering in the desert. We need some transformation of our heart that will enable us to want to be obedient to God. So everything I've said so far tonight, in a sense, is that mirror. It challenges. It it shows us who we are. It shows us how short we fall of God's standard. But remember... On every page in Numbers where there's a mirror that challenges, there's also the word of God that encourages. And this is the bit now that encourages. Isn't it wonderful to know that when we fail to be obedient, there's one who never failed to be obedient. His name is Jesus Christ. And so you go back to this slide that we were working through earlier. God called his people towards purity in the camp and where they failed to be pure and sin defiled them they were sent outside of the camp it's not insignificant it's not just a coincidence that we read in the book of hebrews chapter 13 that when jesus was crucified he was crucified outside of the city where were all the impure people outside the city and where did jesus die for impure people outside the city Come to the second one, purity in relationships. Sin is transgression. 
and God's people had to confess their sin. Isn't it wonderful that in Jesus Christ we read in 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for sin. No more are these other endless sacrifices that have to be performed or confession before priests because Jesus Christ is the great high priest. He died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And then where there's not, where God's people were called towards purity in marriage, where there was impurity, and this is just symbolic of anything in life where we don't honor God, God's people had to stand before the Lord in judgment. Isn't it wonderful that we read in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Amazingly, Jesus Christ was the true Nazarite. He was born in Nazareth. And he was the one who willingly gave himself that we might be made pure. Not a temporary vow of wanting to honor God that was well-intentioned by the Nazarites but never fully kept. But wonderfully, Jesus was the true Nazarite who kept God's laws perfectly in every single way. And so you come back to where we started, but it's the end of our reading tonight, Numbers chapter 6. You get this wonderful prayer. Remember, God to Moses, to Aaron, to the people. When you think about the cross of Christ, isn't what happened to Jesus on the cross the complete antithesis of this blessing? You see, on the cross, the Lord did not bless Jesus Christ or keep him. On the cross, Jesus Christ was cursed and was abandoned. On the cross, the Lord didn't make his face shine upon Christ and was not gracious to him. Instead, God's, the Father's grace was removed and Jesus faced the full weight of his wrath. And on the cross, the Lord didn't turn his face towards Christ, but turned his face away, and he didn't experience peace. What did he cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everything, therefore, that was meant in this blessing didn't happen on the cross, so that this blessing can be true for you and for me. It's amazing, isn't it? And so to conclude... God created a perfect world and a perfect world revolved around him being king. And the book of Numbers is just one picture in a sense of this journey from perfection in the garden to perfection again, Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of the Bible. But we're reminded that perfection only is possible when God is at the center. But the book of Numbers is a sad book, but it reminds us that when we put ourselves at the center of our lives, it just leads to chaos. That's why God gives us his instructions in love, because he knows that's the way the world works best. And so you take the context of the book of Numbers. Remember, we looked at it last week, the Exodus. God's people are in slavery 400 years in Egypt. And God, in this enormous, amazing, miraculous act of rescue, brings them out of slavery and wants to lead them towards the promised land. And though that's the most incredible, miraculous rescue, which sets up a picture for the whole of the Bible, it's just a picture of a far greater rescue. The rescue that Jesus Christ wins for us on the cross, where he saves us from ourselves. He saves us from the chaos of life lived without him. And he takes us in the direction again of perfection, the world to come, where there'll be no more sickness, no more crying, no more, no more dying, no more pain. Because the old order of things has passed away. And in heaven, 
We won't probably be camped like they were in little rows uh, with the priest in the middle and, and, and the tabernacle. It won't be like that. But symbolically it will be like that because God's people will be at peace. It won't be chaotic. And who will dwell right at the heart of it all? The living God who created us for relationship with him. So as I close, just some wonderful words that we often sing that remind us of all that we've been looking at in this two chapters. Chapters that focus on God's heart that we might be pure. And a chapter that ultimately points us through to God's heart of where we get pardon at the cross of Christ. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within, and make me holy. Purify my heart, cleanse me from my sin, deep within. Let's take a moment of quiet to come before the Lord and say sorry for all the ways that we don't honour him, but also to be thankful that Jesus Christ is the obedient one who covers our shame. Let's be still for a moment.